go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! So I did my daily walk backwards today. When I went out the door, I went south instead of north. And I realized that the route that I normally go when I go north, I am always going down the hills. Like every time there is a slope on this particular walk, I'm always going with gravity. So when I did it today in reverse, that was uh-huh. a really dumb idea. <laughs> Fair. I don't doubt that. Are you sure it's always downhill, though? I'm I, like, like you do have to come home. No, I know it's it's not like don't get me wrong. I'm not going down. <laughs> like it's it's not so much that if I like let go of my shopping cart, I'd be chasing it. It's it's a it's a gentle slope. Like it's it's somewhere above like somewhere between 10 and 15 degrees. But I just noticed more and more I was looking up as I was walking. And certainly when I got home, I could feel that I had gone up a little bit more. So the point is, tomorrow I need to make sure that I turn right instead of left. Greetings and salutations. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to a matinee cast presentation of the Winchester Chronicles. This is dispatch number five. Our mission is this. COVID-19 is affecting everybody's lives. Obviously, that includes being able to go to the movies. That means our usual discussions of cinematic passion and perspective have to shift. However, it doesn't mean the overall film discussion has to stop. So while we wait for this whole thing to blow over, we virtually sit here in our virtual Winchester pub and turn our attention to the best films of the decade gone by instead of the new releases we usually cover. You know, it's really interesting to see how our rhythms and routines have changed in the wake of this pandemic. There are places we aren't going, routines we aren't following, products we aren't consuming, and even people we aren't seeing. Today's guest, for instance, is one of my very best friends who I talk to damn near every day. But since our conversations are usually by email, and I'm not sitting in front of a computer terminal all day long, those emails have slowed. Now, that's not to suggest that our friendship is a one of only of email convenience, perish the thought, only that the key line of communication is facilitated by a rhythm, and that rhythm has been broken. Therefore, today, we try to restore a little of that lost rhythm and do what forged the friendship in the first place talk about movies. She is a co-host of the currently hiatus Real Insight podcast and a contributing writer at Cinema Access. We are across a wire to upstate New York where Jess Rogers is here. How are you, Doc? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you for that intro. That was lovely. Yeah, I tried to get it just so. It's been a while. I do miss our emails. Um, I am still parked in front of that computer typing all day. Um, you parked in front of a different although, computer, though. I'm parked in front of two computers. Oh, my gosh. And not more often, I was writing to you on my phone, running from thing to thing. And so now I'd be trying to pretend I wasn't <laughs> on my phone during a Zoom call at best. <laughs> so. On our fifth dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles, we will be discussing Beasts of the Southern Wild, turning the record over to play the other side. But first, we begin with Creature Comforts.
Okay, if you're new here, Creature Comforts is a segment where we talk about any old thing that is keeping us entertained and amused uh, while we are all on lockdown. It could be books, could be games, could be TV, um, anything that's entertaining and uh, and keeping us company. Once you get us started, Jess, what have uh, what have you been uh, up to while we've all been uh, sequestered? Well, I'm going to start with the thing that. I think is most appropriate for while we're sequestered. Okay. Like most of the other things I think would still have the same value once the world comes back. Sure. But this podcast in particular is perfect for right now. It's called um, Staying In with Emily and Kamel. And it's Kamel Nanjiani and his wife, um, Emily B. Gordon. And they've got, I think, eight regular po- po- podcasts out now. And... I don't know, four or five um, sort of theme-based podcasts. The two of them mostly just talk to each other about how to get through this, how they're getting through it. Because if you've seen The Big Sick, you know she's an extremely immunocompromised person. And so she has what they call immunobuddies or other immunocompromised pe- compromised people who, how they deal with it. And the first one talks a lot about how Kamal is very afraid on behalf of his wife um, and how to deal with that kind of fear. And one of the things I didn't know, because I don't think it came up as much in the movie, is she's a trained um, psychologist. She's mm. She was a practicing psychologist, um, mostly working with um, adolescents and kids, but she has the full training. And so she throws in these nice tidbits of how to get through this stuff. And they describe this time as the weirds, which I think is perfect. It's just weird. That sounds like an incredible idea. Um, I must admit, and this is going to sound like absolute complete blasphemy. My podcast listening has pretty much cratered during this whole thing um, because when so I'm, has mine. so has a lot of people. I know that if you if you take a look around the news, you will read that podcast listening is down, um, and mm-hmm. a lot of it is people don't have a commute anymore so if it was something that somebody listened to on their commute that time of the day is gone um people who listened at their desk while they were working uh it's not quite the same and some and a lot of us aren't working um and i do know that with some of the ones that were popular before um namely stuff like true crime people just aren't in the headspace this sounds like I got to admit, like, this is something that's really tempting. Like, if I wanted to... It's so good. For me, how I listen to it, where it hits my comfort zone, is I put it on for 15... Every episode is somewhere around an hour, an hour and 20 minutes. But there's only eight. And I've been listening sort of as we went. And I put it on for 15 or 20 minutes in the morning when I have my coffee and cook breakfast. And then I put it on 15, 20 minutes at night before I go to bed. And there are moments to laugh at, but it's not like it gets you all riled up. It's not politics. It's nothing like that. They talk about crazy things like Emily's obsessed with the the squirrel in her backyard. And (laughs) it's really little things like they fight. I'm using air quotes because they are the happiest couple in they are the nicest couple you can ever sort of want to listen to. And they sort of fight about the fact that Kamel basically has a spot on the couch and has basically colonized the area around it with his stuff. Mm. Whereas Emily would rather move around to space to space. Okay. Okay. But, space in the couch doesn't become permanent gotcha and so they have these little like very mundane house discussions have they brought up the fact that now because he's a marvel hero he's jacked well that's yes completely it comes up every episode because (laughs) 
he's almost OCD about the working out because it's how he manages his stress to the point that he's like dangerously working out in his opinion. And they, the one I just listened to part of, I think episode eight this morning, um, she asked him, she's, he was saying, Oh, I'm so disappointed. Like this might be the first summer in my entire life. I have abs and I may not get to go go to a beach or a pool to see him. And she's like, wait a minute were you actually going to take your shirt off? And he's like, well, no. (laughs) So it's one of those things where they're really real people too. Like you don't get over who you already were just because the Marvel universe made you jacked. They're very real people. Okay. That is a great idea. And they're only going up once a week. So, I mean, if I have to space it out over a few days, that's, that's not such a bad idea either. There will be a link for the show uh, in the show notes of this episode. So if you're curious, go, uh, go take a a look. Um, Well, I mean, the first thing of, you know, I'm, I'm watching a little bit more TV than I used to. um, And I'm, I'm, I'm taking the bait on newer series more than I used to, especially newer series that drop, on platforms like Amazon and Netflix, where I know it's got a whole season and I don't have to worry about uh, a season mm-hmm. getting canceled. I took the bait on Hollywood, which is the new series by Ryan oh, Murphy. Really? Yeah, that does not sound like my shtick at all, I know. So if people don't know, this is a series that's based in the Hollywood Golden Age, like post-World War II America, um, when movies like Gentleman's Agreement and those sorts of movies were being made. Um, and it's it's star- it's got a pretty good cast. It's got Darren Chris, Jeremy Pope, Jim Parsons, Patty Lapone is in this, Samara Weaving is in this. Um, Laura Harrier is possibly like the star of the whole darn show. Um, and it's all around this movie that gets made. The pill that you have to swallow is, can you buy a Hollywood Golden Age story where they make a movie that fixes the world's problems? And if you can't buy that, then this movie, this show is going to do nothing for you. It's all fictional. Like, it's, it's like none of this happened. They use several real people. Like, one of the characters is Rock Hudson. Um, and the agent that's played by Jim Parsons is based on a real dude. It's not set at a real studio. Oh, uh, Vivian Lee comes and goes occasionally. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's set within real America, but the story is absolute hogwash because the whole idea is they write this story where um, an actress moves to Hollywood to fulfill her dream and things don't really go her way. And when it's original, and and of course it's just, it's just written. That's just kind of, you know, nothing strategic in mind, but as the director who's played by Darren Chris and the writer who's played by Jeremy Pope, as they start talking to each other, they start kind of branching out what they really want to do. Jeremy Pope is gay man of color. So he's all about trying to make this thing as inclusive as possible way back before inclusivity was a thing. And the crux comes down to casting Laura Harrier in the lead. This all kind of spins into representation of gay people in Hollywood, representation of people of color in Hollywood. And it can be a little heavy handed, admittedly. Mm. Um, But it's so handsome. It's it like it's, oh, it gets, I wondered if I'd get sucked in by yeah, that. Yeah, it's really handsome. It, it's got a lot of lines that are really funny. Um, Jim Parsons might steal the whole darn show as this agent who has just he's just fed up with everybody because he's he's just 
represented so many pretty boys that he he's just tired of it and he he's kind of the kind of guy who can who has an in with a lot of the gossip mags so he can kill a story or plant a story mm. as 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 needs to be patty lapone is incredible as she is the wife of the studio head the studio head is played by rob reiner and she plays his wife okay early on in the show uh you kind of you learn how like she's involved with things and how she's not involved with things but she she eventually gets into a position of power within the studio without giving things away she's just baller in this role she's got you know just the brassiness that she that you would expect out of her she's got a lot of vulnerability okay. um, it's 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 got some things going for it but as i said the the heavy-handed message of the world could have been a better place if we had made a movie with a black woman in the lead back in 19, you know, 54 that. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, if, as I said, if you want to get kind of a, a TCM esque fix, if you want to see some pretty good jokes, um, Hey, if, uh, if you like seeing handsome men without wearing a whole lot of clothes, there's a lot of that in this show too. (laughs) So that could be your thing. That's interesting that Ryan Murphy would come up because I'm debating between for my second one. I think I just happened to catch it now, um, and it's Zoe's in, Zoe's extraordinary playlist. You mean that show that has, I've been talking that I've been emailing you about for like a year? Not a year for yes. like all, all all winter. Okay, yeah, go well, on. Yeah, since since the turn of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I got to binge. I think the first seven, and okay. there were twelve. Okay. Um, so I had to wait for the others, which right. I did not care for. <laughs> My favorite thing was um, her friend who has to live, who lives across the hallway, um, who was a product of the Glee Project, which I watched when it was like recruiting. Basically, they were trying to find something to do Glee off the air and give a behind the scenes thing for Glee. So they were running the Glee Project, which was win a role on Glee. She played unique on Glee. Uh, Alex her name Newell was right is, there. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Alex Newell, and um, was amazing. I th- I love her as the roommate across the hallway, not roommate um, neighbor. So the premise of the show is so good. The idea I don't even remember how, and it doesn't really matter. I do. How? So she goes in for an MRI and they tell her, the doctors tell her that she can listen to music while she's getting her MRI. And there's, it's the, the show is set in San Francisco. And of course, being San Francisco, there is an earthquake during her MRI and the music, what that she's listening to glitches out in spectacular fashion. And so after that, this was so great. She can now hear people, people's innermost thoughts as song. So they call them heart songs and eventually she has to do something to help them. Um, It's very in the line of Eli Stone, which Mm -hmm. I loved once upon a time with Johnny Lee Miller. Um, They did a lot of singing and dancing in that one where in order to make the singing and dancing stop, you have to help the person by listening to the singing and dancing that's going on and figure out what help they need. Skylar Aston plays her best friend Max, but there's another guy in the office who's maybe a love interest, and they create a very interesting, constantly changing sort of isosceles triangle. Like her mm. distance to each of them changes quite regularly, and which one she's more interested in. I was totally Team Max all the way. I didn't care for Simon in particular, but I thought 
Simon was a problematic character because he's engaged when they meet. Right. So there's all these issues. And Lauren I think Graham I remember that email. Boss. Yes. <laughs> Peter Gallagher is her dad who has a um, has reached nearly the end of a very debilitating neurological disease. And so we get, but we do get to hear from him. While it's a lovely, lovely show. It is a fabulous little show. Um, I would like certainly between the two shows that we just talked about, I would recommend that like, you know, every day of the week and twice on Sunday over Hollywood. Um, I, while you were talking, I did look it up. And the reason why Zoe goes to get an MRI is because she is worried that she may have traces of the same PSP that ah. her father has. So she's she's trying to take preventative measures. And that's that when the MRI sense. glitches. Yeah, it, uh, yeah okay. makes, it would make total sense. Um, yeah. The only thing that doesn't make sense. I mean, it, it, I was going to say the only thing that doesn't make sense is that she's checking now because her father's PSP is really advanced. Um, but right. I guess, you know, people put things like that off and don't get checked like the moment a diagnosis comes down. So right. Zoe's just being a normal person in that respect. As far as the shows I've watched in 2020, this has been one of the highlights for me. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I really hope this show comes back. There's a lot of things that are going to work against it. Like first and foremost, first and foremost, just what is going to, what kind of show is going to be able to be produced when is going to dictate a lot of what we're going to see when we sure. get to fall, you know, like we're going to be okay through the summer, but once the leaves start to turn, it's going to be a complete crapshoot. Well, you, we don't know what they're holding back, right? They're not able to make anything right now. Exactly. Exactly. That's the, like that, that's first and foremost. It doesn't just apply to Hollywood or Zoe. It applies to everything. You name your show and they aren't yeah. making it right now. Right. Not yet. Um, no. no. So number one, number two, to that end, this is not the kind of show that they can cheat. This is not the kind of show that they can just dial down what it looks like and kind of streamline it to like a small crew and a small production because this is a big show. There are scenes and numbers that involve dozens and dozens of people. True. So, you know, this show either has to be done as we have just seen it or not at all. That's number two. Yeah. Number three, and probably the most, the, the biggest one of them all. This is an expensive ass show. It has to be. I wondered about that. <laughs> yeah. Besides the fact that it is really handsome, like this is really yes, good looking it's show. Very shiny. Yeah. All these numbers are these numbers are all choreographed by Mandy Moore, and the the sets are all gorgeous, and the costumes are all gorgeous. Um, the music that they're singing is not cheap. Like the very first number that we hear of these heart songs is the Beatles. So like I turned right. to Lindsay when when they started singing, I was like. So they got a budget, huh? And it, <laughs> that, that does not slow up. Like you can, there's never a point where you get to a show and it's like they're just picking like some smaller songs. Yeah. Like every show you really watch, right up to the end. yeah, yeah. Every show you watch, you will hear a song you recognize. I promise you. And those songs mm -hmm. ain't cheap. Um, without giving anything away. What I will say about this show as well is that when you get to what could be the series conclusion, if it is only one season, it does stop at a natural point. It could just be a 12-episode show and that's it. Um, when you get to that final episode, I am convinced that the music director was out to kill me um, because <laughs> <laughs> there were two songs in the final episode back-to-back um that just had me like 
deeply in tears watching watching them within the context and watching those songs specifically the first of the two just caught me so off guard because it was a show it was a song that i don't i don't think i've heard it in public it's on it's on a mm. yeah it's on a record from like 20 something years ago and it was a song that i latched to really deeply and i maybe heard it one or two times on the radio right after it arrived but it's kind of a deep cut on the record like i don't think it was a single so hearing it on this show in the context that it was played i was gone so i'm i'm i'll when you get to that episode um You'll know. You'll probably know which song yes. it is. Um, well, my other creature mm-hmm. comfort, I brought this up to you in a conversation the other day, and, and now I can actually kind of fill you in on some of the details that I didn't talk about. Um, so Saturdays uh, Saturdays for me are about comic books. Uh, Saturday mornings are comics and coffee. Um, and I've, I'm, I'm not reading hard copies these days because stores are closed and I'm not making as much money. So I've been borrowing a lot more. Um, and and it's I got to admit, it is... Not my first choice to read comics on a tablet, but it's certainly better than nothing. There is an artist and writer who I like. Her name is Sweeney Boo. Uh, she has done the art on a run of Scooby-Doo comics, uh, and she did a, uh, the art on a run of Captain Marvel comics. Um, and she wrote and illustrated a book called Eat and Love Yourself, a story about a woman, a young woman named Mindy, who's living with an eating disorder, and she she has a bad night out at a bar with like her best friend, and on the way home, she does what a lot of people like like us do, and she buys some crappy stuff on the way home, like she buys some chips and some pop, um, and she when she's going to to cash out, there's a chocolate bar uh, near the like a, a box of chocolate bars near the cash, uh, and the chocolate bar is called Eat and Love Yourself, and she's like, oh well, I like supporting little businesses and local businesses and this is you know some small little startup yeah sure i'll buy one of these what the hell and this chocolate bar what i was actually afraid of when i started reading this book was that this chocolate bar was going to somehow like superpower slim her down and that would be the crux of the story but it's not i'm happy to report what it does is every time she breaks off a square of the chocolate bar she has either a dream or a memory of some moment in her past where she struggled with body image and body dysmorphia and um, eating disorders. And she is able to see it from her now mid twenties, late twenties self and see what was actually happening. And it really like every time she kind of comes out of these visions, she's gains like a new perspective on what she's doing and what's going on and how she needs to be relating to people and and treating herself um it's a beautiful little story it's not like it's one of these stories that blends a like a really touchy and complicated subject in such an elegant manner like it's not preachy um and i mean the artwork of it is really whimsical like you could hand this comic book to like a 13 year old and they would just soak it up because it's, it's that kind of really round and really um, whimsical uh, artwork. And the the story is just so good. I've been talking to you about how, uh, you know, my body's a fight and my body has been a fight Mm -hmm. for a very long time. And I know that like you and I were talking about like how things are going to change when, 
I'm now going to be like just spending my time at home for however many weeks. And you're suggesting, mm-hmm. well, maybe you can eat this way. Maybe you could do this way. And I'm like, I'm just going to focus on just not dying. And <laughs> whatever happens <laughs> to come out of the fridge, that's what it is. So that was most of what um, isolation has been. And I got to admit, like after reading this book, I kind of got up off the couch and just tried a few different things and stepped on a scale for the first time in several weeks and just felt just such a shot in the arm after, you know, this, what I, you know, I spent an hour with 200 pages of words and pictures and it was really one of the best creature comforts I could have chosen, not just for the week, but for the whole isolation. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it is. And I mean, like, I know comics aren't everybody's thing and I know that this kind of story isn't going to be everybody's thing. Like, you know, if, if, if you're looking for, if you're looking for heroes, this is not, this is not your thing. Um, but I do believe that it's a story that a lot of people could glean something from. Um, Sweeney Boo's art and her writing, it tends to skew a little bit younger, but this is a really, it's a really mature story. And I think it's the kind of thing that applies to a lot of different people and could really gain something out of reading this book. That's awesome. Yeah. What was the name of this particular story you liked? Eat and Love Yourself. So it's a self- Eat and Love Yourself. Eat and Love okay. Yourself. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes. It's actually really new. I didn't realize it was so new. It only was released back on april 21st of this year i thought it was a little bit late to the party but it turns out i'm like oh, wow. right on time yeah um yeah seriously yeah so you know yeah take it take it it's, it's self-contained it's not a series that's going to be ongoing it's just like a 200 page graphic novel um and right. you know if you're like me it'll probably take you an hour if you want to nurse it a little bit it'll take a few days but it's a really good uh, graphic novel that i'd highly recommend well there we go that is our creature comforts for dispatch number five we have a feature to discuss so come on back right after this our feature for dispatch number five is beasts of the southern wild of the southern wild was released in 2012 it was directed by ben zeitlin written by zeitlin along with lucy aliber who wrote the screenplay based on the stage play uh, that she also authored it stars quovenjane wallace dwight henry and a bunch of other no-name actors Beast of the Southern Wild is a simple little folktale about a community called the bathtub which seems to be located in louisiana usa the people of the bathtub are dirt poor and sealed off from the rest of the region by levees. They teach, feed, and look out for one another, sometimes feasting on scraps, other times making out like bandits on the bounty the earth provides. The crux of the story is our narrator Hush Puppy, that's Wallace, a six-year-old girl being raised by her father Wink. Wink and Hush Puppy live in abject squalor, the father wrestling with a litany of physical and mental health issues. When a storm approaches, threatening to flood out the bathtub, the two decide not to flee and instead stand their ground. As the storm clouds recede, Wink and Hush Puppy face even more challenges, with a home underwater, community scattered, and threats, both natural and unnatural, closing in. If nothing else, Beasts of the Southern Wild wants us to learn our place. It wants us to understand the threat we pose to the world and the threat the world poses to us, and likewise, the fragility of the societies we have built for ourselves. But in trying to teach a lesson, 
One needs to chart the best course to truly instill the value of the lesson into the minds of the gathered students. So pop quiz, Dr. Rogers. If you, were, if you were auditing Southern Wild 101 and had to submit an assessment on its lesson plan, would you say that it has crafted its lecture well? And why or why not? Well, I'll have to start by saying I have assigned this video, this movie, in two different classes oh. and asked students the same thing. Okay. <laughs> um, yep, I taught a freshman seminar, two semest- two different semesters, um, on the meaning of identity. And what does identity mean? Where do you draw? And the, you, we move through a whole series of discussions from novels and short stories and poetry to how do you how do you describe your identity? What kinds of things bring the idea of identity to bear? And so I think, and the reason I proposed Beasts of Southern Wild as one of the best of the decade was it does a job of being both explicit about identity. We are from the bathtub. We are these people and being implicit that we are human so that it's giving you these two really different ideas of identity. And then Hush Puppy is desperate to try to figure out where she belongs within her family. So she's pushed into this identity. Her father keeps calling her little man. Yeah, That's a gender identity that, but every she talks about herself as a girl. Other people talk about her as a girl, but her father calls calls her little man. And there's just so much about the process that goes through this movie that I think is amazing. Plus, um, it was always an environmentally themed class, and you get some really big environmental messages through it. So I have read many essays on this <laughs> movie, actually. Maybe it was a cheat if I assigned it, if you haven't read as many essays. Uh, well, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I certainly haven't. You're going to come into this much better prepared <laughs> than I am. Um, I, I, I believe it crafts a lot of its lecture well. Um, it's funny that you mention identity because, I mean, the one thing that we have to accept – off the top, like not to kind of pull the rug out from this as a selection of one of the best of the, of the decade. But I mean, it is a story of, you know, a largely uh, community of color being told by a younger white dude. So it's a little, it's a little disingenuous at times. Um, And I know actually it has come under fire uh, from Mm -hmm. several critics of what kind of, picture it's trying to paint you know uh, in terms of poverty in terms of stereotypes from the past uh right down to the look of hush puppy herself um Mm -hmm. it's 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 funny that you mention hush puppy being called little man and the the question of identity because i remember when i first saw trailers for this movie i wasn't entirely sure if hush puppy was a girl or a boy because i mean right she's six right so when you're six you're you're not developed in any way that's really going to tip you off i know like my younger brother was was mistaken for a girl plenty of times because his hair was so blonde and so floppy and his eyes were bloody huge um so i it's 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 the kind of thing where i was like wait is that a boy or is that a girl and now i'm thinking right it doesn't really matter um but yeah that that's the only thing i would say about its question of identity is if this was a lesson plan being mapped out by ben zeitlin I don't know that he took enough 
care with the story he with with the lesson he was trying to teach um i would have been more mm. interested at this time to see this story told by somebody like ryan coogler who went on to do you know like black panther movies um but back when he was doing movies like fruitvale station i would have interested to see him take a stab at this script and see what more he could glean from it um but you know it like i, I it is a good movie for sure so there's a couple of things that really get me through this movie i struggle every time i've seen it and i've probably seen it i don't know at least six times at this point between teaching it and seeing it in the theater and then seeing it for this um and there's a moment where um hush puppy is trying is having a conversation with her mother and trying to hold on to that moment when she was last happy and things were normal. And she's trying to draw all of the things around her that were what she best liked. Like, clearly her father, who's an alcoholic, has clear issues. Like, he makes a six-year-old live in her own trailer while he lives in a different trailer. He seems to care about her deeply and feed her on occasion but he gets himself locked up in various places for various reasons and isn't there to take care of her so it can be a big issue but hush puppy's trying to cook for herself and you hear her mom's voice as she imagines it and there's just this sense of like deep love within hush puppy that overrides all of the things i definitely see all of the um issues of the movie where it could be um where it is racist where it is um classist in ways that perpetuate negative stereotypes and at the same time i think it's trying very hard to be loved not at the heart of all people not at the heart of the movie but it's at the heart of hush puppy which i think is a good step for the way this movie was directed. I don't think this movie was trying to be an environmental environmentalism movie. I don't think it was trying to raise the environmental conscience. I think it was telling a very small story in a very interesting way. I, I really like it. I like the way it's crafted. I think what I like the most about it is it wants to take us to a place you know, like it really, this is a movie that's very, very much about setting and not just like physical setting, but like you said, in terms of community and identity and, and a people, um, this, this is, you know, like I said, it's, it's very much Louisiana just because I mean, there's, there's levees. So that's, that's usually where mm -hmm. the brain goes. And I think and swamps, yeah. yeah, the swamps and, and there, there's talk of Gator and most of the people who speak certainly wink have a bit of a Southern drawl to their, to their, mm -hmm their um diction um but beyond even just that it very much wants to take us out of our seat and put us somewhere specific you know it's not just a right. kind of movie that takes place in any old big city north america or any old countryside bayou kind of you know like like you know oh this is a small town story of you know, two neighbor, like two neighbors that fell in love and, you know, used to kind of right. go for runs in the back 40 or whatever. This is a very specific community at a very specific time and place. And the movie takes great pains to really, really put us there um, in terms of what it shows us, how it shows us that the music that really underscores everything. And it's mm -hmm. fantastic music. Um, and maybe even just that, 
it's all Hush Puppy's point of view. So it's kind of all of this yeah. very dreamlike quality. And you don't mm-hmm. you don't get that in a lot of the movies. Like I think that is what makes this one of the singular movies of the decade is how deeply it wants to put us into this place. This place and like you just said, deeply into Hush Puppy's point of view. They explain very, very little to the audience about what's wrong with her father, why any of these people are particularly here, because Hush Puppy doesn't know. And it's not integral to the story. They're not it's not telling the story of this place. It's telling us that this place exists and there are people who make their way in the world living exactly like this. And for these reasons that don't make any difference to us, this is who hush puppy is and where hush puppy is. I love when she's, they're trying to go through the school and there's a scene where they're talking about, um, the water's going to rise and it's basic science and nothing about it's exactly wrong, but <laughs> very little of it is a hundred percent right. And it's like, actually I'd rather hear that and have them be able to make arguments based on that than some of the nonsense about not believing in certain things or that it can't be as a certain way for certain reasons so you kind of believe in it and they really look out for each other and are very much there for each other they're aware of how the environment is influencing their well-being and they're aware of what it takes to live in these places so um it's this really small or six-year-old look at potentially what happened after katrina because that's kind of what they're emulating is that this great storm came through just south of what presumably is new orleans and the levees were keeping the bathtub flooded which i think is kind of a funny name for it but because the levees were still going they weren't going to let the water drain out of the bathtub and so things were still dying and so these guys had to push into their own to blow up part of the levee so that it could drain the bathtub yeah um And it's just going into some of these ideas of she doesn't exactly know where her mom went. Her mom's gone, but nobody's really explained why or where she's generally aware. I love, I love the moment when she picks up the little chicks and talks about everything, having a heartbeat and the whole world. And she just builds these ideas that maybe everything is connected because she's never been told it isn't. She's never been disconnected from the world she lives in. I mean, that's one of the things that really gives this movie its power is it's all from Hush Puppy's point of view. And we, we see the world so very differently when we're five or six, like we're cognizant. We're we're not completely unaware of what's going on around us. It's not like we're, we're little babies and we're just kind of going wherever our parents take us. We have half a clue as to what's going on around us, but it's just that it's half a clue, right? Yes. Um, you know, like I, I guarantee, if you ask the average five or six year old what's going on right now, they don't entirely understand. They just understand people are sick and we have to stay inside. Um, so right. to put this entire fable through Hush Puppy's point of view, I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of genius because it allows them to cheat a whole lot of corners um, that, yes. that otherwise the story that that would have to get into the complexities of this community. Um, and, but on the other hand, it really does give the whole thing a childlike, dreamlike quality. You know, you mentioned 
the whole idea that the the world has a heartbeat and i mean the soundtrack even at one point mm-hmm. picks up the heartbeat of um i think it's, a, it's either a dog or it's a pig or something like that who she sees in the opening um you can actually hear the heartbeat on the soundtrack right. and it's it's kind of a genius move because it really it doesn't let you get too cynical about this movie because the whole time you're being told what's happening through the six-year-old voice of Covengine Wallace. Mm-hmm. Now, no, that's exactly. And the last piece that to bring up, because you don't want to lose it because it's this mystical, magical realism aspect is it's like knowing the grammar of a language and no vocabulary so that she's told about the aurochs, which are a legitimate ancient um, extinct um, mammal oh, that real? exists. Yeah, they're real. Oh, okay. I, th- I thought they made that shit up. <laughs> nope. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and she imagines what they'd look like and that they would come for her. And you get them, these are the beasts, although there's a lot of debate about what the beasts might be. And you get this massive, honking, loud, enormous, because to a child, everything's enormous. Um, they're not real as they're depicted in the movie, but aurochs were real um and the way it's gone about and she doesn't know what they are she just knows the teacher has told them this thing and they come marching right up to her as if it's something to be afraid of but yet she follows through with this inherent identity of safety that she's in this place with these people and that she has she's an empowered six-year-old who isn't afraid of the aurochs which i just think is amazing it's it's a really truly iconic moment at the end of this movie when she meets the aurochs it really reminds me quite a bit of the statue of the little girl that for a while was placed in front of the bull on wall street i think didn't they they just moved she's in front of the stock exchange now i think um yeah but it 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 brought upon that same sort of symbolism of the defiance in in the in the face of this brutal natural force that, you know, has it within it to completely destroy her um, if, if she wanted it. And it's, it's not exactly the last moment of the movie, but it's, it might as well be. Um, And it's, and it's a beautiful moment that really kind of sums up, like you said, that sums up her whole attitude towards life in the bathtub and all the dangers that are, that are inherent. And her, the other piece, and every time I see it, I, always wonder a little more about what the aurochs are. And that's actually one of the questions that's on the worksheet that my students always have to do is what do the aurochs represent? And it always starts off with aurochs were real (laughs) 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 parentheses. What do the aurochs represent to um, hush puppy? And every time I read the students answers, I I agree with whatever their answers are because they're all different. And I, I, every time I watch it, I still don't know exactly. Like sometimes I think it's the just impending doom of climate change. That's the aurochs. And sometimes it's the, um, the end of innocence. So it's whatever growing up is. And I think they're just such a interesting tool to make the movie, um, whatever the viewer needs it to be in some ways so that the aurochs are this cool, unknown that's just coming for hush puppy yeah i think i think if i were to answer that question on one of your worksheets i would just i would probably say that they represent 
the dangers that the world present to you once you get outside of the cozy confines of your own backyard, um, and because you're constantly going to face them down, um, whether they're you know as I said natural or unnatural in the in the introduction to this segment, and the beauty of her stance of defiance in the face of those dangers is she's innocent enough not to know better. You know what I mean? Like right. she, she, it's like, like I was saying before, she has no concept. She probably had like children get afraid. Don't get me wrong. Children, children understand fear. Absolutely. But sure. they, they don't entirely understand danger. I mean, that's why a child wanders into traffic. Right. So on the mm-hmm. one hand, it is reckless in the way that a child can be reckless. But on the other hand, it can be seen as fearless as I am looking square into the face of something that a grown person would be terrified of. And I do not understand that fear because it hasn't been taught to me yet. Mm-hmm. That would be my answer. So I don't, I don't know what kind of marks I'd get out of you. Maybe we're grading <laughs> on a curve. Um, we'll see. I do wonder um, anytime uh, there's a movie that hangs on the performance of a juvenile actor, as Covenjane Wallace is in this movie, is she actually acting or is she just being a child who is precocious? Like, I mean, she got an Oscar nomination out of this. Mm-hmm. So props. Um, and she has acted since not a whole lot. Um, I mean, she's still young, but um, wh- where does she fall on that actually doing something versus just being a normal six-year-old divide? I think her performance is really powerful i don't know how much comes out of editing where they make her do the same thing 90 times but that's any actor's process right um she does a really cool job maybe they just said go play with the animals and that's just what she comes up with but i assume they had to teach her how to hold them how to um pick them up how to move them around and not be afraid i think she does a brilliant job i think she does so much of it she has to be powerful she interacts with the other characters really well she must be she must have been she's older now but she must have been a very precocious child on her own so you don't see her as a child in this one you don't see her you see her as blended with all the other characters to me it's not like in some of the other movies um with child actors where you can kind of see the acting going on. I mean, already what she's done, like she's she, since this, she's worked with C. McQueen. She, she was the, you know, in the remake of Annie and she reasonably, mm-hmm. I mean, that movie has a lot of problems, but she ain't one of them. Um, <laughs> right. She's, she started having a bit of a, she had a bit part on uh, blackish a year or so ago. Yep. Um, so she can act. I don't think it was just her running around the set and them chasing her with a camera. She's not asked to, act cute i think that's if i was really to kind of grade on if she's acting or if she's being precocious she's more often than not she's just acting natural like there's one time where she's kind of doing some cute stuff when she's uh when she's cooking for herself like that's kind of the moment where people would probably smile and laugh at some of the things she does like when she throws on the football helmet to light the stove and those kinds of things but the rest of the time she's She's being a kid, you know, like she's not trying to over over enunciate anything or use any words that, you know, wouldn't be in her vocabulary or act more mature than her station. So I think 
if anything, it's it's kind of door number three. She's not necessarily acting. She's not being precocious. She's just following direction really well. One of the other things, and I didn't, I never remember this, but it just came to me. A lot of her acting is voiceover. It's not her actually talking all that often. It's not her speaking as acting. She's doing the physical part of it, and then there's a voiceover that goes with it. And I think that's part of what gives it this um, adult feel to it, that it's she's out of body in sort of the way she's talking. She's clearly smarter than the six-year-old we're watching, even though it's obviously the voice of the six-year-old we're watching. Is that cheating? Because storytelling is supposed to be no, show I don't and tell. Know. That's a lot of telling. It is a lot of telling. I'm not sure why it works, but I think it works in a way that if they had made a Kvangene at six in that particular setup, talk to a human and say those things, it wouldn't have worked. That's a good point. I mean, it's it's funny because on the one hand, it sort of starts to tiptoe over into Terrence Malick territory where you just have somebody yes. kind of walking through a field and their thoughts narrated in their own little whispered voice, although this time we're saving the whisper. So it's not like, you know, if, if I'm going to hang this movie for telling more than it shows, then I've got to hang basically everything that Terrence Malick did this last decade as well, because that was his whole crux. If she were to be saying a lot of these things out loud, first of all, I don't know how she would be able to say them to anybody because like she's not going to say them to camera right she's not going to say them to no. herself so it's it's kind of an elegant little cheat that really <laughs> helps to underline what she's doing naturally I, I think i picked up on the community a little bit more than i did the first time and i think that's probably a result of us being so isolated these days um mm -hmm. you know it, it really comes to the forefront in the way that wink comes and goes out of this movie and yet there's always kind of somebody not that far away from from hush puppy and certainly when it goes into the second act and the government kind of comes in and tries to help people she's still never taken off on her own she's always got either other kids around her or other grown-ups right. or you know as i said if wink comes and goes that to me um of the bathtub really looking out for each other it gave me, you know, it really kind of underscored what a community like this would, would be like, the way that they look out for their own. Um, it's, you know, you and I have talked a lot over the last few years about um, poorer neighborhoods and communities and areas and regions of America and how in a lot of ways they're forgotten just because industry is moving away from these kinds mm -hmm. of, of regions and it's leading to a lot of disenfranchisement. Um, and on the one hand, it's like, well, what are you going to do? You know, like, why don't they just kind of pick up and go where the jobs are? But then you realize they're the kind of communities that have probably been there for, you know, a century. I mean, for a community like the bathtub where they've all lived there for a century, for them to pick up and move into like downtown New Orleans, you might as well ask them to move to the moon. You know, it's not what they're going to understand. It's not what they're going to know. To put, to say nothing of the fact that they may just not have the means to do it. So, oh, yeah. you know, these pockets of North America really have to look out for one another because in a lot of times their countries stop looking out for them. The thing that I noticed less this time, which is strange because, and that's one of the reasons I actually really like, really like rewatching movies. The first and probably second times I watched this, 
all I could see was what I perceived to be the abuse of Hush Puppy, mm. like how bad her parent, her dad was, the fact that her mom abandoned her. She was left to run around basically unwashed, clearly uneducated about school things, though she's barely at the age where that would be an issue. We're right at the edge of where she should. And then they pointed out really starkly when she's in the um, social services and made to put on a dress and calm her hair and things like that. This time watching it, I don't know if I'd just seen it before and I knew it turned out fine for her, so I wasn't afraid that the abuse would lead to her demise in some way, but or neglect, I guess. But it didn't hit me the same way. I saw that her father was there often enough. Yes, the fire could have been devastating, but it turned out okay. And I think I was more, like you were saying, more drawn into the strength of the whole community of people who had made certain choices in their life not to live in cities, in, um, I was going to say communities, but what I meant were like formal structures of society. Sure. There's a book that came out not too long ago called Where the Crawdads Sing, and there's a story in that that is very similar, I think, to what's in here. So oh. The one thing uh, in terms of this movie is I, I look at the storyteller behind it. I look at Ben Zeitlin, and I am somewhat perplexed that he didn't really get another um, – he didn't really get a whole lot more out of – his career than this one movie so far. Like there is, there's a movie that came out this winter called Wendy, which I have not heard a single good thing about. Unfortunately, Mm. it's some sort of reimagining of Peter Pan, which should be right up my alley. Uh, But I, again, I haven't heard a single good thing about it. There was one other film that I'll bring up later, but it, it wasn't a film that he directed. It was just kind of, it was something that him and his team produced. The, the the first credit that comes up after Beasts of the Southern Wilds, like when it when it cuts to black, Court Thirteen, a Court Thirteen film, um, Zeitlin. I mean, it's crazy because on the one hand, he was one of the youngest directors ever to get nominated for Best Director, um, and and this movie really seemed to be launching him into a prominent career, but. He, for reasons I do not know, he just kind of couldn't follow it up. I, I wonder about that sometimes when we look back on an era of time, when we see an artist or a storyteller, and you sometimes think, did you only have one story in you? I think that you're articulating every artist's greatest fear. <laughs> <laughs> I do, yeah, I wonder, like, if we're ever going to see anything like this again out of Ben Zeitlin, or if it would, like, I don't... Like you said, like he, I'm sure I'm not saying anything that he hasn't said to himself, but that's the one right. thing I always, I, I do, I kind of, it saddens me a little bit because we're looking at like the films that are going to come out over the next two or three years, and we're looking at more films by Christopher Nolan and Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson and Quentin Tarantino, and I'm like, I would kill for some new voices, please. And I, I guess I kind of mm-hmm. hope that Ben Zeitlin was going to be one of those voices. Um, looking at his list he hasn't had he's had a little bit he's a composer as well so i guess he's been doing he's been doing a lot of things but not nothing that you'd go oh yeah this is a follow-up to 
Beasts of the Southern Wild. Right. I'm surprised. I guess I'm surprised he didn't capitalize on it because the some of the art, like some of the conversations I've had over the last uh, few years, and I mean, here is a voice that we're going to get in the next decade that's going to be better than some of these Andersons and Tarantinos and whatever. But I look at a storyteller like Taika Waititi. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you look at, here's a guy who made a bunch of small movies and he went and did a really big movie with Marvel and they said, and he made enough money off that to go do whatever the heck he wanted. So he goes and does the Hitler movie. You know what I mean? It's, (laughs) it's, it's that kind of thing. Yeah. It's that kind of thing where small, really well-crafted projects can lead to all these amazing opportunities. And maybe just Zeitlin just didn't take up any of these studios on the opportunities they offered him. We were talking Mm -hmm. earlier on, we were talking about Kamel Nunja. Johnny, the director of his him. yeah the director of his Marvel film is Chloe Zhao and Chloe Zhao did a movie oh, I wow. adore called The Rider and based on that she got a great big huge Marvel project she's going to be able to make whatever the shit she wants for like the next 10 years based on just that yeah. one paycheck so I'm I guess I'm I'm saddened that Zeitlin his path hasn't led him to to give us some more interesting stuff you know the sad part is we don't follow up on the ones that never made it all that no. often no no there's there's not enough where are but. the now these days no thankfully that sort of torture device has gone away <laughs> <laughs> happily for people i'm sure i mean i'm you sure know, we've we've been praising this movie but i think the one thing that we have to look at at this point in time is the difficulty with this movie is the way it celebrates the libertarian community and it vilifies the government. Right. Um, you know, we get into the third act of this movie and the American, like it's not even strict, like specifically American, but we're just kind of left to deduce the American government comes in to this community. That's really, really does need some sort of help. And it tries to extract the, especially the children kind of put them through the social services paces and kind of get them help that they need. But the community themselves and the narrative of this movie sees that as a bad thing. And watching all of that happening right now, I was like, that's leaving a bad taste in my mouth. I don't know. I always have some balance, some balance between that where Maybe we should, as a society, have a little more room for alternative communities and alternative societies as they function and not require every version of that. Um, I'm kind of thinking of the book um, Educated that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah, we did a buddy read on that last year. Yeah, there's like an element of a private community for it. Were they abused and probably had problems that should have been stopped? Absolutely. Um, but were they a functioning society into and of themselves? I think one of the things that makes us Americans is that you can potentially agree with those ideas yourself. And similarly, I'm torn between, yes, Hush Puppy has the right to an education and a right to clean and safe housing and all of those things, but I think it's hard to fight the idea that she has a right to these things too. So, I don't know. It kind of goes back and forth and back and forth for me. 
Yeah. I'm not entirely sure I guess where that is. It's 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 the timing, right? If I have when I every other time that I would have watched this movie, I probably wouldn't thought about it twice. But thinking about now about how libertarians are trying to say we want to have the right to go out into the world and you know get our sandwich, even though you say that we should be staying at home. This is a movie. Like if I was programming this movie right now, I would probably rethink the timing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because it's not like... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's you know, it's not like the FBI rolling in on E.T. and taking him away from Elliot and his family. It's not that dark. But at the same time, like, it does not paint a very rosy picture of government overstepping their role. No, it doesn't. And that's the question. It's like, where is their role? And that's the part I have trouble with. Clearly, the movie has made us is made for us to think that they are overstepping that role. Yeah. But I, I think, is it people doing their job badly and not being sensitive to what they could be doing to promote what Hush Puppy and his, her father and their community values inside of this idea of, well, you got to play by some of our rules too. And I mean, that's probably another one of those things that led to criticism of this movie. And, you know, both of us are saying it is valid criticism. Like if somebody were to come away from this movie and think, you know, I was with it up until that point And now I, I can't, I can't, I, you know, I can't condone this movie. We would both understand exactly where they're coming from. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, when we get into the late going of this movie, there is a scene between Hush Puppy and a woman who she believes may be her mother. Um, and I really loved that scene this time. I found the whole approach to it was so comforting and lowercase r romantic. Um, it kind of gave me this idea of Hush Puppy, like the whole movie being a search for the feeling of home. Because this whole mm -hmm. scene, absolutely, yeah, the the whole scene in the way that, as it, like the warm colors of it, the the soothing music of it, the fact that you know it, it takes, it's it's a scene where she gets picked up, and I think she gets danced with at one point. Um, she mm -hmm. gets taken into the kitchen and she gets fed. I'm like, that is the absolute like most perfect version of home I could think of in a movie. They color it funny, so it's sort of a red, pinky, not quite right, right? Like almost a rose. The not this time I saw it. The last time I saw it, I was like, it's almost a rose-colored glasses issue where you're looking at it and you're like, this isn't right, but it's so nice. <laughs> does that make sense? It does. I mean, it's it's very dreamlike, you know. I mean, the whole movie is yes. very dreamlike on its own, but this kind of feels like a different chamber within the dream. Um, okay. I mean, right down to the fact that it almost seems like they're in a brothel. Yeah. Well, if, absolutely. If memory serves, which I mean, it should be really jarring that you have a whole bunch of kids in a brothel. Yes. <laughs> and yet at no time do you question it? They don't because we're seeing it through the eyes of a child. Right. Right. Which I mean, right back down to what we're talking about as children don't understand fear they also don't understand inappropriate so a child can walk into a hooters and just think you know pretty lady in orange shorts whereas a parent would be like get out of that hooters right now i i do love that that's one of the the last moments that we get in this movie that's been really driving home this idea of 
community and togetherness and place, this search for home is a feeling. It's a person, it's a touch, it's a taste. Um, and like you say, it's, it's, it's because it's something that is so idyllic in our heads and something that sometimes is really hard to achieve and kind of takes us a lot of our lives to really achieve. Yeah, it, it makes sense that it doesn't quite look right because it's so hard to describe. The kids don't know what they're seeing. No. And that's one of the things I like this, that this movie does. It doesn't try to tell the people watching it exactly what they're seeing. It's like, no, you have to decide based on how the six-year-old perceives this, what they're likely seeing. Like a lot of other movies give you a solid wink and a nod. Like you'd see the greasy pimp in the corner. The six-year-old might not see him, but the audience would. And so the audience is tipped off to audience. You should know this is a brothel. Yeah. And this movie at no point does that. Anywhere we go, we only see it from Hush Puppy's point of view. And I love that. I mean, right down to the way the movie does not explicitly underline this is her mother. Right. You know, it leaves that up to you. It might be her mother. There's a lot of clues. Oh, I've never thought it was her mother. (laughs) I mean, I guess I kind of want it to be her mother, but I I don't like the, the, the pragmatist in me doesn't actually think it's her mother. But I mean, if she does, then I'll like, okay, kid. Yeah, that was your mom. As we've been doing this series, we've been talking about the, the films that like stood out from the last 10 years, but we've also tried to use it as a way to underline what we've just been through. Um, so when it comes to Beasts of the Southern Wild, what is it about this movie that encapsulates the last decade for you? I think it's two things. So one of them is that clearly we did not learn enough from the previous decade, that in 2005, when Katrina hit and they flooded Louisiana and it made these huge changes in the Gulf. And then we had Deepwater Horizon in 2011. And then we get this movie. We clearly have not yet thoroughly taken on the task of caring for people who are extremely vulnerable in those particular areas. And then the second piece is that we clearly have not done enough over the last 20 years to work on climate change. It's an understated theme through the entire movie that these people literally live at the edge of any climate change. Anything that's going to happen, any inch raise in sea level is going to flood the bathtub. And they're aware of it. They can see it. And they still have no power. They're literally powerless in that respect to do anything about it. And I think it's an interesting reflection on how society refuses to learn from these massive changes that go on. I mean, we can only hope that this biggest catastrophe going on right now with COVID, we actually are able to learn something from it. But if history's taught us anything, it's that we don't learn very well or very fast. Yeah. I mean, I think that was that was something of my answer as well is this past decade and as we approach the new one, this is probably our last chance to take action to keep our own bathtubs intact. And right. it's one thing, like you say, to to look at areas like the American Gulf Coast, um, really low-lying areas of the world, and the, the great risk that they are in that we've already seen with our own eyes. Um, it's going to be a whole other beast when 
pardon the pun, when um, areas that we thought were far less vulnerable, like New York City, suddenly become really highly at risk for deep, deep flooding. And, you know, there's a great uh, repercussion from that, you know, uh, cities like London that are on water. I'm sure, you know, I'm certainly not telling you anything you don't already know, <laughs> but this is, and, and this is the thing is we're at this point. We were already at this point and we're certainly at it now where the clock is ticking very, very loudly for us to try to undo some of the damage we've done. Beast of the Southern Wild, it's not, um, it's not a civics lesson. You know, it's it's not an environmental lecture. It it right. really is in very many ways. It is really just a parable, and you can take from it what you want. You could just take it as a pretty movie about a little girl, but if you look at it as this is what is happening in the world and how like how something so big at the top affects something so small at the bottom, and then just like multiply that out. That's its application to the last decade. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. a good way of putting it. I like that. Well, we've been talking about it for so long that now Sorry. I'm re- no, 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 now now I am truly curious because you've you've teased and tortured Jess Rogers. What would be your souvenir from Beasts of the Southern Wild? For this time through watching it, and I really think it is a COVID asterisk on the souvenir. Okay. It's that moment when she meets the woman who she thinks is her mother. And she says, in six years, she thinks she's only been picked up twice. Hmm. And then her mother, like you see her, we see baby hush puppy um, clearly being picked up and put in a bath or something that is a memory that hush puppy might have. And then this now current moment where this woman picks her up and hugs her and dances with her. And it's just that kind of, yeah, we, you don't have that right now. I mean, I suppose if you live in a great big family right now, you might have lots of people around you, but, um, I see me and one other person and (laughs) there's, I can count the number. Literally I went to physical therapy today and I can count the number of doors I have opened in the last two months and today made three. And that's a little weird. Yeah. And being able to count the number of times in your whole life you've been picked up. It's heartbreaking. And that moment is so magical that she's getting this sort of moment and she's, savoring this moment with this woman to be picked up and hugged and loved. I think it's one of Hush Puppy's greatest characteristics is that she's always looking for not seeking love, but that she has so much inside her that she sees it all over the place. That's a really good souvenir. Uh, Mine is uh, far less romantic and far more selfish. Um, I really want some fried alligator. Um, (laughs) I... I should say first of all, I love alligator. I've I've had it a few times in my life, and it is really oh yeah. I mean, like I I like calamari, and it's it's calamari in pieces basically. Um, and I have a thing for uh, scenes of process in a movie. So anytime you see somebody cooking, and there's attention mm-hmm. paid to the chopping and the breading. And and then the, everything. I love that kind of stuff. I always kind of come back to that George Clooney movie, The American, and when he's putting together the rifle 
that to mm. me is just like crack. I could watch those kinds of things all day long. <laughs> so there's a moment that if I'm stealing one shot, it's that boxes and boxes of chicken and biscuits. In yeah, that guy. Yes. That he's, he's <laughs> counting the time he's been in that yes. boat by the boxes. <laughs> exactly. Just um, a single screenshot. Yeah. But, it, but first of all, like it's been a long, long time since I've had alligator anywhere because I mean, it's, it's certainly not the kind of thing mm-hmm. that I can find here in Toronto. Um, and I, and I do miss it and they make it look so delicious um hush puppy brings a piece back to wink and you know it might as well be his last meal and you can kind of see the comfort and the happiness on his face as he takes that bite and you know i i know you eat far less meat than i do but i'm like you know that that's a creature that can eat me i am i am prey to that creature so i hold no bones about eating it um so that was the thing i came away from this i was like Man, I could really go for Cajun right now, so I'm going to have to wait, I'm sure, but uh, that would be my souvenir. Hey, um, let us know what your thoughts are on Beast of the Southern Wild. Maybe you absolutely adore this movie. Maybe you hate this movie. Uh, maybe we touched on some things that you hadn't thought about. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, matinee underscore CA, or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Beast of the Southern Wild? We are going to flip the record over and play the other side, so come on back. Back. She's Jess Rogers. I'm Ryan McNeil. It's Winchester Chronicles Dispatch Number Five. We've been talking about Beasts of the Southern Wild. I've successfully so far managed not to call it Beasts of No Nation, so I'm considering that a gold star. Um, I often get those two movies mixed up. This is the point in the show where we talk about uh, further reading. Um, you know, other movies you could go on to after the feature topic. Uh, get us started, Doc. What would you uh, suggest people go on to after? Uh, the, the the film that you suggested is one of the best of the decade. So the what I would suggest, and this is where my cheat is really going to be, but I'm trying to promote a movie that I think is amazing and should definitely be seen and is in the same sort of category of there's something just singular about it that I think all people should see. And I saw it as part of Hot Docs at... Um, uh, Toronto last year and it's called Kifaru and I tried to find out if it had any distribution anywhere and I haven't been able to find anything but that doesn't mean it shouldn't still be out there. I'm going to try to get them to bring it to my local um, art house theater and the movie's called Kifaru which means um, rhinoceros in Swahili and it's about the very last um, It's a, they literally follow the very last male northern white rhino in the world it's the last one that exists, and it was in the newspapers that he passed away, and so the species is literally the walking dead. There are two females still living, and there are no more male white, northern white rhinos in the world. And you get to watch these people. Uh, there's two younger rangers coming to live with this rhino's name is Sudan, because that's where he was born. Um, and he's in a part of Kenya that actually I used to live in, um, the old Pejeda Conservancy. And he's being raised there. And you see him, and you see them bringing in these other rhinos to live with him. It is a documentary, so it has a different character and feel to it. But it's this 
particular place in time that can be no other. And I don't know what struck me. I think the aurochs kind of look like rhinoceroses <laughs> and the idea of this very singular moment in time that they happened to be watching um, Sudan. He wasn't the very last at the time they started the filming. Um, he ultimately, another um, male white rhino was um, poached and Sudan became the last and um, ultimately passed away. But we watched sort of the process of what it means to these people to live in this particular area and be tasked with this particular duty. And it's beautifully shot. Um, in Kenya, you get to see all kinds of animals um, around uh, around him and what they're trying to go through to support them and the threats they're under from poaching for rhino horn and all of these things. And it really, watching Beasts of Southern Wild this time, I was like, oh my God, I want to see that documentary about rhinos again. And I only watched it, I watched it, what, last fall? Yeah, right, no, last, last spring. spring. Last spring, this time last year. Last almost a year ago and it's called kifaru and it's wonderful it's beautifully shot it i don't think it has a wide release distribution yet but fingers crossed so i wanted to promote that so it's up to you if you decide to count that one or not k-i-f-a-r-u i mean Um, the, the great thing now is with all of these dozens and dozens and dozens of streaming platforms as a lot of these films have so many more places to go than before where it used to be maybe it would play in your art house theater and then maybe it would eventually end up on dvd if that right like this is the kind of film i could certainly see this showing up on something like like netflix or like national geographic or one of those like there there's so many i I mean i watched one this week i watched a documentary on netflix about mountains you know which just just randomly i happened to watch one about mountains and it was just so calming and so beautiful but it's not the kind of thing that you would imagine would be deep within netflix and and it was pretty easy to find so um i'll put a link to the to the um documentary site in the show notes so that people can see pictures and trailers and that kind of thing but uh, yeah it looks like i mean looks like a bummer but um <laughs> it looks like a beautiful bummer surprisingly for sure. it's not okay. i mean the movie the movie came out after the new york times article i'd already read that said sudan has passed away but watching i mean literally you're watching the end of a species gotcha. and it doesn't happen and it's not a bummer often. <laughs> it's it's not a bummer. It's I mean it's it's an inevitability. Similarly yes. that you watch Beasts of the Southern Wild and the minute you let yourself think about the climate change issues that are going to make the bathtub basically by this point, twenty twenty, the, the bathtub doesn't exist. It's right. underwater. Okay. Okay. Um, if you let yourself go that way, yes. Right. <laughs> it is a bummer. Don't look outside the box. Okay. Exactly. Um well you Thank started you with the documentary, so so will I. Uh, my documentary is from three years ago now, and it is uh, actually it's also one that I saw at Hot Docs. So um I think we probably got, both got that on the brain because that, that would have been happening <laughs> about now. And they've had to right. do a whole bunch of different things to try to get their their festival off the off the ground this year um mine is a film called brimstone and glory and the reason Mm -hmm. why it's on my mind is the director uh victor uh he was part of that group that i talked about um with beasts of the southern wild that like group of 13 or whatever the heck they're called. This is, um, this is a production. This is another production out of their little shop. Um, so it's got a similar 
passion to it, a similar heartbeat to it, but it holds nothing really in common with um, Beasts of the Southern Wild, except that, again, it's about a small community. This is about a Mexican town um, called mm-hmm. uh, Tolpatic. Their entire industry is fireworks. Okay. Uh, yeah. So this documentary takes place during the annual pyrotechnic like firework festival, um, which is not when I say firework festival, I'm not talking about something that you would see on the on the mall in Washington, D.C. or like, uh, you know, off Lake Ontario, if you're if you're local where, you know, it's a barge way out like off the water and you're sitting safe distance. No, 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 no. We are talking about. They create the townsfolk create these bulls and and elephants and and animals like basically like parade floats that they then walk Whoa. through the middle of the town on this one huge festival day. Then that night they start shooting fireworks out of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, that's wow. day, that is day one. Then on day two they build these huge scaffolded basically if you imagine like burning man or if you imagine like your average electrical tower these huge scaffolds that are chock-a-block completely like grafted with various types of fireworks and then on on night two they set these they light these things up so you're watching first of all you're watching no safety precautions and and they get some amazing footage of this stuff where you're really just kind of holding your breath. You're watching these firework festivals go on through some very tightly packed streets. And you're like, how are these people not getting burnt to a crisp, including the bloody film crew? Uh, apparently, the film crew was shooting a lot of this stuff in like fire retardant suits. So oh, my God. Yeah, they're getting in really good and close. And the footage out of it is gorgeous. I'll try to I include. Bet. Yeah, I'll try to include a a, a, um, a trailer or something in the show notes. But it was something when I saw this movie in 2017. Would have been about five years after Beasts. I was like, this is like these kinds of stories of community and and you know like really lively areas of of humanity. This is any if this group is going to keep making these stories, that's totally what I'm going to keep coming back for. But unfortunately, as I said, that was all I ever saw to this group over the entire decade was these two movies and then this new one that came out this fall. So, uh Brimstone and Glory uh is it it's a really gorgeous little little flick. Uh you are up. What uh, what else you got as an other side for somebody to go on to after that after uh, Beasts? Well, I had two sort of different ones okay. that I'm still torn as to it, it would depend on the feeling beasts gave you, which one would you would go to watch afterward. Okay. If you were more interested in following through on that singular moment and watching people react and play around with it with through the eyes of a child, then I was kind of pushing towards extremely loud and incredibly close. Mm. Because I think there's a moment in U.S. history, because it's filmed around the 9-11 attacks, and just like Beasts of the Southern Wild is based on Katrina, and you're watching a child sort of interact with that. The other one was Whale Rider, because it touched on the younger woman, um, a little girl, not quite a little girl, but a young girl. Um, who has to connect with this community. Both of them have connections to 
this movie in in separate ways. Extremely loud and incredible close. I know that movie was hated by a lot of people who found yeah. it manipulative and really saccharine and and you yep. know kind of I don't find that. Yeah, but yeah, like similarly like, that. Beast was criticized. Exactly, yeah. Um, I remember reading that book um, because uh, Jonathan Safran Foer is an is an yeah. author who I I still to this day really dig his writing. Uh, that man mm-hmm. does not write nearly enough. Although you know, True. considering that we're talking about a lot of um, environmental issues and uh, and issues affecting our planet, he wrote a really great piece of nonfiction called Eating Animals. Um, which I also taught in that class. Ah, how about that? I know. Started the uh, Beast of the Southern Wild was right before we started eating animals. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, I mean, like I, I've said before, it is probably the closest book I've ever read to put to actually convincing me to go vegetarian and it still didn't mm-hmm. quite get me over the line. Um, but it, it's, it's really well written and really well expressed. Um, and, and Saffron four, he's a great writer and the book of extremely loud and incredibly close. It really gets you into the headspace of the, the, the boy in that movie who loses his father in nine 11. I would say spoilers, mm-hmm. but it's really not. Cause you find that out really no. quick. Um, but yeah, like, like it is, that was a movie that was, lauded like that was up for best picture in that year but also really vilified by a lot of people um it was directed by stephen daldry who mm-hmm. basically it seems like every time he makes a movie um he he gets nominated for awards so if you're ever in an oscar pool of trying to pick nominations do not bet against daldry because he's the same guy <laughs> who did the reader he's the same guy who did billy elliot um he, he there's something else he did that i'm forgetting and last i heard he was attached to wicked over at uh universal um oh wow whale rider meanwhile i mean again it's a film that got acclaim it's a film that had mm-hmm. a really wonderful performance by a juvenile actor at its core. That was not a movie where the question was whether or not the child was being precocious because she was about 13 and it's more of a, it's more of a natural coming of age story. It's not the kind of thing where a little, you know, a teenager falls in love and becomes like sexually aware or anything like that. It's, it's more of a, of of here somebody having a moment of crisis within their community and how her immediate family cho- chooses to deal with it really has a a lasting impact on her that movie of course is also really timely because it was directed by Nikki Caro who at some point or another this year is going to have a new movie with Mulan. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I knew there was a reason. See, these aren't like my deliberate thoughts. It's basically the universe putting little pieces of these into my brain <laughs> but I and mean, saying, this is what should come out right now. It, but it, it, like, it is. Those, those would make an amazing double feature when you talk about the, the natural world putting a, a huge event into the path of a young girl. Yeah. You know, whether it's a six-year-old or a 13-year-old and how it impacts their life and how it impacts their entire outlook going forward. Oh, absolutely. Okay, you played two cards at one time, so I'm going to do that too. What do you got? I had one. Both I I went with in terms of setting. Um, One film that's set in a poor community and one film that's set in a very singular community. So my first one... 
is very much up your alley, actually. The first one I thought about when I thought about a, a poor community was I thought about Frozen River. Yes. From 2008 oh, with Melissa Leo. Um, set, yeah. Uh, not terribly far from your neck of the woods, actually. Um, no, about 25 miles. Yeah. Um, what's that in kilometers? Uh, I don't know, 16? <laughs> they're, they're, okay. Oh, so very close. Okay, yeah. So you, you put it that way, and I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. Um, metric, Something like that. Metric system. It's, it's great. It's, it's a story about, um, you know, a really 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 poor community where this this woman is her her whole goal is to get a double wide trailer and i mean she's got like no money absolutely like this is this is a community that where their capital b broke or i guess it would be a lowercase b broke if i really wanted to drive the home the point home and it's about what they do to survive what they do to try to get just a little bit ahead and in this case it happens to be running people back and forth across the border um sometimes um incurring their way through native land and kind of like beasts of the southern wild it's the kind of story that you don't read every day or see every day because it's not it's not really sexy it's not glossy it's not feel good it's not the kind of corner of north america that lends itself to to storytelling and yet the stories that come out of these corners of north america are no less compelling Mm -hmm. oh absolutely so last week i think it was tuesday tuesday is missing and murdered indigenous women's day in the idea of trying to bring to light that this is a thing. Misty Upham, who was the woman who played uh, Mohawk um, on the reservation near here, was sexually assaulted at the 2013 Golden Globes and then subsequently murdered. She disappeared and was found to have died. They believed it was suicide. And then it turned out she died only to massive blunt force trauma, which you can't really do to yourself very easily. And so she's among these missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, she was missing for quite a while. She was found in the dress she was wearing from the Golden Globes. Oh, my God. And I can't even believe that that's – it came up in my Facebook feed today. Some one of my friends who um, strongly promotes indigenous rights brought it up. And Misty Upham um, died in 2013, which it's- is just – unreal it's a i mean it's a huge story that it like i mean in canada it's taking on more and more volume as the years go on um thanks to movements like uh, silent no more but Mm -hmm. it's it's unfortunately still a reality and still a story um you it was touched on in another film called wind river we did a whole episode on it a few years ago um myself and um hillary butler did an episode on on wind river and yeah it's 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 crazy that this is a reality for an entire population of north america and yet it's just accepted right It, it it's it's one of these things that just is it's that it's it's under yeah it's behind a veil i mean yeah I happen to know I loved Frozen River because I happened to live near there. Um, I was looking through stuff. I recognized the name um, and read through the story. And it was like, I am shocked that in seven years, I had no idea that the woman who starred in this movie had died in the, under these circumstances. Yeah. No, that's brutal. Things like that. Yeah. If uh beast of the Southern wild doesn't bum you out enough, go on to frozen river and that'll do the trick. <laughs> It'll um, definitely bum you out. Yeah. The other movie I thought about in terms of the, we, we talked about the bathtub as 
a very singular place, like a, 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 yeah. a setting that was so well-defined. Um, in a very different way, uh, another film that very much has the sense of place. From 1991, a movie called Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash. Have you ever seen this? I don't know that I've ever even heard of it. <laughs> in, t- in 2004, it was actually added to the National Film Registry uh, in the Library okay. of Congress. Um, it's from 1991. It was directed by Julie Dash. It is very instrumental in a lot of the... Um, old-fashioned elements of Beyonce's Lemonade from a few years ago, when when there were scenes where it looked like women on a plantation, um, that look was really heavily, heavily, heavily influenced by Daughters of the Dust. So if you watch Lemonade or just some of the videos from Lemonade and you thought about, like, that's a really interesting look that these women are, you know, wearing that kind of looks like something out of almost like Gone with the Wind – if you watch Daughters with the Dust, it's that oh moment of this is where it came from. So it's this island off the coast of Georgia, like kind of where Georgia meets South Carolina. And yep. um, it's it was an entire kind of Creole community that has influences from African culture and English culture. And they're they're dressed in that very kind of the Gullah people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's Yeah, I I've been to their islands. Yeah. yeah. And it's and it's gorgeous. It's it's got a, a again a very deep spiritual um yep. undertone to it. It's kind of hard to describe what it's actually about. Um Julie Dash was uh was like you know a prominent not only um female director but female director of color. Um and this is kind of this is her opus really uh, that kind of sailed under the radar at the time it did really well at sundance back in 1991 but then it just kind of fell back in terms of its prevalence and then you know as i said several years later library of congress is is putting it in 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 the uh in the national film registry beyonce is citing it in her in her music videos and it's gaining kind of renewed attention it it's i actually got to see a print of it at tiff a few years ago and it's kind of movie it actually shows up on turner classic movies a lot um so it's possible to catch it there and yeah it's gorgeous it is singular in terms of the setting in terms of like like the placement of this movie i don't think i've ever heard of another movie that comes from this part of your country um or certainly not one that's as prevalent and no. and it's and it's an amazing story that's awesome yeah. i will definitely have to look that up here we go so there we go there's a lot of homework that you can do after beasts of the southern wild and that is the fifth dispatch of the winchester chronicles i'm so happy that just was able to come by come on back on monday june the first for our sixth dispatch we will be discussing stories we tell jess can be found um back episodes of real insight um and and also uh contributing to cinema axis you told me before you're going to be on uh, the cinema axis uh, the podcast that courtney small hosts um and can you are you allowed to tell people what you're talking about we're going to be talking about Always Be My Maybe. Very, very the cool. The Netflix movie with Ali Wong, who I love. Yeah, I love that movie so much. It's such a good rom-com. And if people want to follow mm-hmm. you on Twitter, where can they find you? Well, I still use my very old Twitter handle at this point based on my original blog, which was Insight Into Entertainment. So my 
Twitter handle is in underscore entertain. You're stuck with it now. You can't ever change. I think I am. I don't think so. I only have like 100 followers. I think I could find them again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, in that case, I say you go too. Uh, my site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple, uh, anywhere that podcasts are found, um, you get handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. If you use a platform that my show is not on, let me know and I'll put it there. Um, if you want to drop by and do an episode about one of the decade's best films, or you have feedback on Beasts of the Southern Wild, drop a dime in the comment section of the site. You can email ryan at thematinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore ca. On Facebook, I am facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Doc? I love being on this with you. We had fun. <laughs> Thank you. We we did, and I thank you. I, I, I give you a hug, but you know it's kind of hard to, to do that. Ah, uh, yeah. Over fine. For six feet away. There we go. <laughs> For Jess, I'm Ryan. Wash your hands and call your person. Oh,